you got your Bibles with you, going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, going to be in Matthew chapter 5, the first five verses of Matthew 5. We're skipping ahead just a little bit. Uh, Mark and Kelly, Zach and Leah, they're at the beach right now, so we're skipping ahead. Lord willing, we're going to come back to the end of Matthew 4 next Sunday. Mark will get to that. But today we're looking at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the first five verses. Matthew chapter 5, please hear this public reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to a familiar passage in the Bible, the beginning of a very famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I know the temptation could be that from a famous passage that we feel like we know the passage, and the temptation may be that we would zone out, but I pray that we will not zone out from this incredible passage of Scripture. Father, my guess is there are some in this room who are going through a dry season spiritually, and others may be just in the middle, and others are probably doing well spiritually, but I pray for all the Christians in this room that this passage would be a sweet passage today, that we would be stirred afresh as we consider these opening Beatitudes. And Father, help me to be faithful to your word, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One pastor that I read, he said he had a book in his library called The Great Sermons of the World, The Great Sermons of the World, and in that book it contained the best sermons uh, that have ever been preached. There were sermons by George Whitfield, sermons by uh, Martin Luther, I think probably Charles Spurgeon uh, was in there, and Jonathan Edwards was in there, but the number one sermon in that book of The Great Sermons of the World, the number one sermon was The Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, was the number one sermon. It has been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher Whoever lived, thousands of books and articles have been written on this Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on it, and he's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages on the Sermon on the Mount. One pastor said, no matter how many times we've heard the Sermon on the Mount, there is still more to be gained from this most majestic sermon. I would agree with that. There's more to be gained from this most majestic sermon. Now, as we consider just these Beatitudes, as we think about just these eight Beatitudes, The wealth of these Beatitudes really is inexhaustible. I mean, inexhaustible. We cannot possibly plumb the depths completely on these eight Beatitudes. They are phrased in a simple way. They are phrased in a way that it should be easy to memorize. People think that Jesus did this intentionally. I mean, it follows the same format. Blessed are for theirs or for they. It just follows that same format. So it should be easy to memorize. So Jesus put it in a simple way, an easy-to-memorize way, and yet the depth of thought really is profound in these Beatitudes. So let's sort of set the scene. Let me read the first two verses that we set the scene before we get to the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus' earthly ministry has commenced. It has started. Now, Mark, again, Lord willing, we'll get to that next Sunday in Matthew 4. After his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and crowds are being drawn to see Jesus. All kinds of people are being drawn to see Jesus. We know that he is healing every disease and every affliction at the end of chapter 4. So all kinds of people are being drawn to Jesus. Some are being drawn to Jesus by his words, 
I mean, no one ever spoke like Jesus, so people are talking about his words. You've got to come hear this guy. No one's ever spoken like this man. Other people are drawn to his works. He is healing every disease, so people are coming, and the word is spreading. He's healing every disease and affliction. You've got to come see Jesus. Other people are drawn to him because they're just curious. Maybe the crowd is around Jesus, so they're curious and drawn by the crowd, but there's a diverse group of people are coming to see the Lord Jesus. I mean, just think about the diverse crowd. You have, you have sinners, you have prostitutes, you have tax collectors, you have scribes, you have Pharisees, you have scholars, you have illiterate people, just massive difference of people all crowding around to see the Lord Jesus. And it is in the middle of this ministry that Jesus has just started that he goes up, he sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down in a prominent spot, and he begins to teach from this prominent location. Now, middle of verse 1, it says, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the question is, is Jesus directing this Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, or is he teaching the disciples and the crowd? Well, I think the answer is really yes to both. And I think he's definitely addressing the disciples, but we know for certain that the crowds are listening to him. If you look at the end of Matthew 7, end of Matthew 7, after the Sermon on the Mount is over, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, you will see the crowd's response. Matthew 7 Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So certainly the crowds are listening. He may be addressing his disciples, but certainly the crowds are listening, and they are astonished. They are amazed at Jesus' teaching that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. So now as we begin to think about these Beatitudes, these eight blessings, as it were. The question is, what are, what are these eight Beatitudes? What are these eight Beatitudes? Well, I'll go ahead and give you the answer right here at the beginning, and I'll give you the title of my sermon in just a minute, but here's what these eight Beatitudes are. These eight Beatitudes give us the character of those who are true children of God. They give us the character of those who are true children of God. The Beatitudes emphasize eight principal marks of Christian character and conduct. So the Beatitudes are a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is not talking about an elite group of Christians in these Beatitudes. No, he is talking about all Christians for all time. These Beatitudes represent this diverse characteristic of genuine believers. I think Jerry Edgar mentioned, I think last Sunday he was talking about in 1 John, he said 1 John would be a great book to go to if you're struggling with assurance of salvation. Because John wrote that, so that we may know that we have eternal life. That's what he says in 1 John 5. So that's a great book to go to. Well, as I was studying this, I thought another great spot would be to come to the Beatitudes if you're struggling with assurance. And maybe most people wouldn't think that. But I think this is a great spot to go to to see if you are a genuine believer would be the Beatitudes. One commentator said, as we expose ourselves to the x-rays of Christ's words, he's talking about in the Beatitudes, we see whether we truly are believers. No other section of Scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. So this, these Beatitudes will challenge us to see whether or not we are genuine believers. So with all that said, let me give you the title of my sermon. The title of my sermon is in the form of a question, which is, what do the followers of Jesus look like? What do the followers of Jesus look like? I have three answers to that question, which basically taking the three Beatitudes, three answers to that question, what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number one, they are poor in spirit. They are poor in spirit. Number two, what did the followers of Jesus look like? Number two, they mourn. And number three, what do the followers of Jesus look like? They are meek. But number one, what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number one, they are poor in spirit. Verse three of chapter five says, blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, these are characteristics of true children of God. One man said that these blessings are the blessedness of those who are in right relationship with God. That's what's being described here. And when Jesus begins this most majestic sermon, he begins with this wonderful word, blessed. That's the first word out of Jesus' mouth is this word, blessed. I can go ahead and tell you, there has been lots and lots of ink has been spilled trying to define this word, blessed. I have tried to kind of wade out into this mass of ink to try to figure out what is going on. Everybody takes a slightly different view of this. I'm going to try to condense this down, give you a concise uh, answer to, to what this word means. Lots more could be said about this word. I'll just go ahead and say that lots more could be said about this word. One pastor said this word blessed is a word full of sunshine, thrilling with music. Well, that sounds really good, but it doesn't help me understand what this word means. Other people take this and they just translate it as happy, you know, happy are the poor in spirit, happy, happy, happy. R.C. Sproul said he does not like that in terms of a translation. He doesn't like the word happy because he thinks people will think of happy in terms of a worldly sense of happy that's sort of like warm and fuzzy feeling you get inside. I think Sproul said when, you, when you're playing with a puppy or something like that, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling, that kind of happiness. That's not the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about. This is far deeper what Jesus is referring to here with this word blessed. So one pastor, he was helpful to me on this. He defined it like this, and this is what I'm going to take it as. He defined this word blessed as deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. Deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. That, I think, helps us get a grasp on this word blessed. Lots more can be said about it. That's the way we'll take it, deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. That's the first word out of Jesus' mouth. So look at it again. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the question now is, is Jesus saying blessed are those who live in poverty? Is he saying blessed are those who don't have much financially or materially? Is that what Jesus is saying here in this first beatitude? No, we know that's not what he's saying. Look at it again. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor where? In spirit. He's not talking about poverty in our bank account. He's not talking about poverty in our wallet. He is talking about poverty in a man's spirit. Well, what's a man's spirit? Well, a man's spirit is the deep inward man or the deep inner self. That's what Jesus is talking about. Poverty of the deep inward man. So let's see if we can get get a handle on this. Let's come back to this word poor for just a second. So deeply, profoundly, spiritually happy are the poor in the deep inward man. Let's think about this word poor for just a second as we try to get a grasp on this first beatitude. As we think about someone who is a poor individual in this life, what makes a person a poor person in this life? What makes someone a poor person in this life? Well, a poor man or woman in this life is an impoverished person, is an impoverished person. To be poor would be to be weak, to be helpless. Someone who is poor is dispossessed. Someone who is poor lacks resources to defend and save oneself. Someone who is poor needs to look outside of themselves for the supply of their need. That's the idea of someone who is poor, someone who is needy, impoverished, must look outside of themselves for the supply of their need. So let's see if we can now grasp what Jesus is saying here. Deeply, spiritually, profoundly happy are those who are needy, those who are impoverished, those who are weak and helpless, who are utterly destitute spiritually, who must look outside of themselves for the supply of their need. You see, to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty before a holy God. That's the idea of spiritual poverty. And right away at the beginning of this sermon on the mount, you see how different Jesus' emphasis is than the emphasis of the world. 
The world will say, blessed are those who are filled with self-reliance. Blessed are those who are self-confident. Blessed are those who believe in themselves, but not Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So a very different, different emphasis from Jesus right away at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is describing a person who is spiritually bankrupt and helpless before a holy God, who is morally unclean and is, is conscious of their personal unworthiness before God. All this person can do is cry out for mercy from God, the person who is poor in spirit. And there's a beautiful illustration of this in a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. You may know the parable that I'm referring to where you're going to see poverty of spirit on display. Jesus tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple to pray, and it starts with the Pharisee, and you're going to see clearly this man is not poor in spirit. Here is how he prays the Pharisee. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Clearly, this Pharisee is not someone who is poor in spirit. But listen to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is too ashamed to come closer. He is too ashamed to lift up his eyes and likely tears are streaming down his face as he cries out for mercy from God. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous in God's sight rather than the other. You see, this tax collector has seen his real condition before God. He knows, he knows beyond a shadow of doubt that he has no righteousness, zero righteousness before a holy God that he can claim. He knows he is utterly spiritually bankrupt. He is a debtor in God's court. And all this man can do is cry out to God for mercy. And if you are a Christian here today, you know, you know what it means to be poor in spirit before God. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about men and women face to face with a holy God. And if you, Lloyd-Jones says, if one feels anything in the presence of God except for an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced God. I mean, this is an Isaiah 6 moment is what we're talking about when you see God high and lifted up. Isaiah 6, we've talked about it so many times, but what a great passage. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple, and you have these seraphim with six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. Two, they're flying around, and they cry out all day long, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold, as R.C. Sproul said, had the good sense to shake in the presence of God. And the whole place is filled with smoke. And Isaiah gets this glimpse and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He's literally coming apart at the seams of this vision of God. For I'm a man of unclean lips. His sin rises up. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when we see God, like Isaiah saw God, we know we are spiritually bankrupt before God. We know that we are in desperate need of God's mercy. But look at the verse, verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. And the idea is for theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. One commentator said the kingdom of heaven is not given on the, ra- the basis of race, earned merits, or wealth. It is given to the poor in spirit. Those who are so poor, they know they can offer nothing and do not try try. They cry for mercy and they alone are heard. Now people say this beatitude must come at the beginning. It is the key to all that follows. And Jesus has an order to these. And I think he intentionally put this one first. 
You see, the reason why he put this one first is because poverty of spirit is essential for salvation. It's essential for salvation. A couple different quotes on this. No one can be a Christian without the spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has this spirit. Another pastor said, the supreme lesson of this beatitude is that without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude declares for all time that no one is saved who believes there is something within him that will make God accept him. No one is saved who believes there's something inside of him or her that, that uh, will make God accept him. And I was thinking, you could go around Athens today and you could interview people and time and time again, people would tell you that there is something inside of them that would make God accept them. They would say, I've lived a pretty good life. I'm a pretty good person. And that's why God will let me into heaven. But that is not poverty of spirit. There's no interest in the kingdom of heaven without poverty of spirit. And there's an illustration on this that one pastor used. Uh, he told this story. I don't know how long ago this story took place. There was a, a man who grew up in England and uh, he went and studied law, and eventually he became a, a judge. Now, he grew up in a Christian home, apparently, and he was converted after becoming a judge. And there was another man who uh, was thrown into prison. I don't know what he did exactly, but he was thrown into prison. After he was released from prison, this man, too, was converted. So you have this judge converted later in life, this prisoner, ex-convict, converted to Christ. There was apparently there was a church service where they combined church services, and this particular Sunday, they were having a communion service, and this judge... And this man who'd been an ex-convict took communion side by side together that particular Sunday. I mean, they're so different outwardly, and yet brothers in Christ taking communion side by side, beautiful that was. And the pastor of the church looked down and he noticed this scene with this judge and this ex-convict taking communion side by side. I'm sure he was moved by that. After the service was over, the pastor was walking out with the judge. And the, I think it was the, the judge said to the pastor, did you notice who was taking communion next to me today? And the pastor said, yes, I, I noticed him. I wasn't sure if you saw him. He said, yeah, I, I saw him. And they walked in silence for a little while longer. And then the judge said, what a marvel of grace. What a marvel of grace. And the pastor said, yes, what a marvel of grace indeed. But the judge said, but to whom were you referring? And the pastor said, I was referring to the ex-convict, of course. And the judge said, I wasn't referring to the ex-convict. I was referring to myself. The pastor was surprised and said, I don't understand. You were thinking of yourself? And the judge said, yes. I was taught from earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church. I went up to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm a greater miracle of grace. This judge knows what it is to be poor in spirit before God. And if you're a Christian, you know what it is to be poor in spirit before God. And when you think about the fact that God has saved you, you are amazed. You're floored that God would save you. And you can say with this judge, what a marvel of grace. Not talking about somebody else, but talking about your own soul. What a marvel of grace we are in light of the gospel. So the question, or really a couple of questions here at the end to challenge us would be, the, have you experienced true, genuine poverty of spirit? Can you say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling? So what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number one, they are poor in spirit. Number two, they mourn. Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number two, they mourn. Now, is Jesus talking about mourning the loss of a loved one? Is Jesus talking about mourning over some kind of suffering uh, in their life? No, that's not what Jesus is speaking about. 
Jesus is talking about people who are grief-stricken over their sin. He's talking about a mourning over sin. And you're going to see how this beatitude sort of naturally follows the, the first beatitude. You see, when we see ourselves before God, that we have no righteousness of our own, that we must cry out to God for mercy, our sin rises up and, and we are grieved by our sin. It's just like Isaiah. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And when our sin rises up, we are grieved by our sin. We mourn that we've sinned against this God. So here again, this is another characteristic of a genuine Christian. You see, Christians do not excuse their sin or belittle their sin or ignore their sin. A genuine Christian mourns over his or her sin and is grieved by their sin. It reminded me of the, of the story with Peter when he's you know, out fishing all night and they don't catch a thing. And Jesus is there and he uses Peter's boat and he goes out and he teaches in the boat for a while. And then afterwards, Jesus says to Peter, why don't you, you know, try to catch some more fish, try on the other side of the, of the boat, throw, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And you know, Peter is slightly frustrated with this, I'm sure. He's a professional fisherman. He's been fishing all night. And he says, okay, humor Jesus. Let's throw the net in. They throw it in. And all the fish jump in that net. And it's bursting as they pull it up. And what does Peter say? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He realizes in some sense that the Lord of fish and fishermen is in the boat with him. The Lord of glory is in the boat. In some sense, he realizes this, and his sins rise up to the surface of his life. And he just says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And this is what happens when we see God for who he is, that, that the sins bubble up and we are grieved by these sins. Our, I mean, Sinclair Ferguson preached a powerful sermon on this text. I think he was really young. I've never heard him quite this passionate. It was so good on this verse. He was talking about this verse. But he was talking about all of a sudden we realize, he said, that our lives, our whole lives have revolved around ourselves. We have been living self-centered lives, and our lives should have been revolving around God, and yet we've been living self-centered. He said we realize that our righteousness is filthy rags before this God, and we realize we thought we were going to heaven, but now we realize we're going to hell, and we grieve and we mourn over our sins. This is a godly sorrow over our rebellion against God. An illustration of this comes from the life of George Whitfield. George Whitfield certainly had his flaws, many flaws, but he was got to be one of the greatest evangelists God has ever raised up in the history of the church. I mean, an extraordinarily gifted evangelist and preacher. Benjamin Franklin, who was a friend of his who was not a Christian, they had a great relationship. If you read letters that Whitfield wrote to Franklin, he's constantly urging him to consider Christ. But Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, but Franklin came to hear Whitfield preach. I think it was in Philadelphia somewhere. Whitfield was up on some steps, and uh, Benjamin Franklin like, walked backwards and was trying to calculate how many people could hear his voice. And he went way back, and he calculated basically two square feet per person that he, Whitfield could be heard clearly by 30,000 people. I mean, what an extraordinary voice he must have had. But, but Whitfield did not begin by preaching out of doors. He was preaching indoors. And there was a friend of his named Howell Harris, who was a Welshman, who was preaching outdoors. And they, be, they became friends. And Howell Harris wrote to Whitfield talking about preaching out of doors. And when Whitfield heard about preaching outdoors, he was moved apparently to the depths of his being. Whitfield was just so excited. He thought, oh man, I can reach so many more people if I'm preaching outdoors. I can, preach, I can reach people who never will enter into a church door. I can reach so many more. And so finally, after prayer, he decides he's going to preach outdoors. His first congregation that he went to, was, it couldn't have been a more unlikely congregation. It was a group of people known as the Kingswood Colliers. It was a group of coal miners that he went to and listened to the description about the coal miners. The conditions under which they existed were most deplorable. Men, women, and children labored in the dark tunnelings in the earth, working long hours amidst danger and disease, and their lives were never free from the dirt and dust that attended their employment. So notorious was their settlement for viciousness 
that a stranger seldom ventured into it. So you get the idea. They're, they're quote-unquote, the outcasts of society. They're such, such violent group of people that hardly anybody would even enter in because they're afraid of getting attacked. But yet Whitfield has a love for this group of people. He viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. So he has a desire to go and reach this group of people out of love for them. So he and a friend of his named William Seward, who was a wealthy, I think, English man who helped support George Whitfield, they go to this group of coal miners and they called them out of their dens and holes in the earth. How surprised... Must these outcasts of men have been to see the youthful clergyman and this wealthy Englishman, William Seward, inviting them to hear the gospel preached? That first time he preached, a few hundred people showed up to listen to George Whitfield preach. Now he would return again and again and again, and the more he came back, the more the crowds grew larger and larger to hear him proclaim the gospel. It, the, the biographer says, although these people were notorious for their brutality, there is not the slightest evidence that Whitfield was ever subjected to a vicious word or gesture among them. On the contrary, they seem to have been immediately moved by his manifest love for them, and they would flock to hear him preach and held him in deep affection. They knew, they sensed that this man loves us. And so they did not talk down to him. They were not vicious towards him, not violent in the slightest. And now there's several thousand people there to hear him on this particular occasion to hear George Whitfield preach the gospel. And here is Whitfield's famous account of that day. He says this, having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of Jesus, who was a friend to publicans and came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You see, they were primed and ready to hear the gospel because they know they are sinners. That You don't have to convince these coal miners that they were sinners. They knew that they were sinners. They knew they had no righteousness of their own, and they are glad to hear of Jesus, who provides a righteousness outside of themselves. And then Whitfield said the first discovery of their being affected by the preaching of the gospel was the sight of the white gutters made by their tears which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. So they are covered in coal dust and hundreds of them have white gutters coming down as the tears stream down their face. And Whitfield says hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction. So I can't say for sure why all of them are crying, but my guess is the vast majority of them are crying because they are mourning over their sins. They are, have grief over their sins and tears are coming down their face. Whitfield can clearly see this. But then he says this. So they were soon brought under deep conviction, which, as the event proved, happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. So let me read verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. How were the coal miners comforted? How are we who mourn over our sins? How are we comforted? It's, comforted to, it's comfort to those who know their sin and mourn over the sins. And there is no comfort like the comfort that God brings to sinful human beings. But again, the question is, how are they comforted? How are we comforted? Well, these coal miners were comforted because the heavy load of sin that was on their backs snapped off their backs and rolled onto Jesus. You see, Jesus takes this heavy burden of our sins from those who mourn over their sins, and he gives us rest for all of us who are weary of sin. You see, Jesus removes the cause of our sorrow. He removes the sin that we weep and mourn over. This is the comfort that the gospel brings. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus was teaching that the man who mourns over his sin, contrary to all expectation, is not condemned but pardoned. This is blessedness beyond anyone's expectation. 
You see, in Jesus, there is forgiveness and pardon. He takes the burden of our sins, and there is comfort now. We can put aside the garments of mourning. We can rejoice and be comforted in light of the gospel. So a couple of sentences, again, to challenge us on this beatitude. If you have never sorrowed over sin in your life, not just its consequences, but sin itself, then consider long and carefully whether you really are a Christian. Genuine believers, those who are truly born again, have mourned and continue to mourn over their sin. One more story on this beatitude comes from the life of a man named Chuck Colson. Some of you will know the name Chuck Colson. Others will not know Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson uh, served in the Marine Corps as a Marine Corps captain. Later, he would become special counsel to President Richard Nixon between 1969 and 1973. This is before his conversion. Later, he would end up serving jail time. I think obstruction of justice was the charge that he pleaded guilty to. He would serve jail time later. This is the summer of 1973, and Chuck Colson was getting pounded by the press in this, this summer. And for the first time, I think Colson realized that he had participated in the murky ethical deeds of the Nixon White House. So Chuck Colson decides to go and see a friend of his named Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips was a CEO of a company living in Massachusetts. So Chuck Colson goes to see his friend Tom Phillips. Now, Tom Phillips had recently come to faith in Christ. So Chuck Colson goes to see this brand new Christian, Tom Phillips, and they have a conversation together. And Tom Phillips basically presented the gospel to Chuck Colson, just faithfully told him about Jesus. And apparently he urged Chuck Colson to repent of his sins and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Apparently he urged him pretty strongly pretty straightforward manner. Here's what Chuck Colson says about that. He said, that night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively, but didn't let on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him, but said, no. So Tom Phillips presents the gospel. He says, repent and believe. Can I pray with you? No, nothing from Chuck Colson. Doesn't tell him anything. And then they part ways. Chuck Colson heads to the driveway. Now, Tom Phillips may have been discouraged in this conversation, but Chuck Colson heads to the driveway, gets in his car, but he cannot drive out of the driveway. He says, when I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive out of the driveway. I sat alone in my car. My own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes, forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean, and worst of all, I could not escape. This sounds like the first beatitude. This sounds like poverty of spirit is beginning to be produced in Chuck Coles, and he sees that he's a sinner, and it's painful as it's thrust before his eyes. And this man who'd been a Marine Corps captain had been a tough guy in the White House. He cannot drive out of the driveway because he begins to weep in his car in the driveway. He said, I was crying out to God. I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus. And Jesus came into my life. I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. One author has said that Colson saw that he was guilty, that Christ had died for him, and he repeatedly cried out in his car, take me. Chuck Colson, you see, was ruined by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which hunted him like a hound of heaven and claimed him when he was at his most vulnerable. Now, I want to make clear that Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who cry. That's not what he said. He said, blessed are those who mourn. This is a spiritual mourning. It may produce tears and it may not, but this is, there should be genuine grief in spirit over our sins. So what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number one, they are poor in spirit. Number two, they mourn. And number three, they are meek. They are meek. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number three, they are meek. So poverty of spirit, and then mourning over sin, and then when we experience the comfort of the gospel, no comfort like that, once we experience that, that's going to begin to have a pervasive 
influence in our life, and the immediate impact or effect of that is it's going to make us meek. It's going to produce meekness in us. You see, when we face our own lost condition before God, when we see our unworthiness before God, and yet God in His mercy saves us, we experience that comfort of the gospel. This comfort does not lead to pride. This comfort humbles us. This comfort causes us to be grateful to God, and this comfort produces meekness in us. This positive virtue of meekness is produced in us. So now the question is, what does this word mean? It's a very difficult word to define, but what does this word meekness mean? Well, on the one hand, it does not mean weakness. Almost everybody said that. It does not mean weakness. That's not what meekness means. It's not cowardice. Meekness is compatible with courage and great strength. The idea of meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. The meek person is strong. They are gentle, meek, and mild, but they are in control. They're strong as steel. Spurgeon says this about meekness. It may help us get a grasp on it. Spurgeon says, meekness is humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, and contented. So meekness is humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, and contented. See, the man or woman who is meek is truly amazed, absolutely amazed that God has saved them. And meekness results when when we enter into the presence of God and we know that we should be judged, we we should face God's wrath, and yet we experience, uh, Ferguson said, the gentleness of His grace. We experience the gentleness of His grace and that produces gentleness and meekness in our lives. Multiple people told this illustration of a strong, sort of powerful horse that's out in the wild, that no one can tame this horse. And then some, a guy comes along, uh, maybe a horse tamer comes along, and slowly over time he begins to break this horse down. He puts a saddle on it. He puts bit and bridle. He's able to control this horse. It's strength under control now, and that's the idea of meekness. One pastor said, meekness is the means by which God tames the sinful soul by taming the temper, subduing the assertive self, calming the passions, managing the impulses of the heart and bringing order out of chaos in the soul. It's strength under control. One pastor told this story of being in an elevator jammed with people, and it was coming down, and it opened up, and there was a man who wanted to get in the elevator, but he could not fit in the elevator because there's too many people, and as the elevator was closing, closing, this man just began to curse and swear. You see, this man is not meek. His passengers are just coming all out of him. It's not strength under control. More ways that we can get a grasp on this is meekness is not defensive. Meekness can bear injuries without resentment. And those who are meek are not ready to take offense. Now, Mark mentioned this at the first Thursday night in the summer series. And when he said this, it just made me think of meekness. He told the story of of his 16th birthday when he believes he became a Christian right around that that day on his 16th birthday. And somebody essentially treated him unjustly on his birthday. Somebody treated him wrongly. And usually, Mark said he would have responded harshly to this individual. I mean, I'm sure he would have, knowing Mark before his conversion. He would have responded directly and harshly to this individual. But on that occasion, he responded graciously. He responded out of love for this individual. And I thought meekness was already evidencing itself in Mark's life as a brand new Christian. There was meekness on display at his 16th birthday. So the meek person can deal with difficult people in their lives, but meek people can deal with difficult circumstances in our life because we know that every circumstance is sovereignly superintended by our Heavenly Father, and therefore in every circumstance we are able to bow to Him and trust Him and know He will work everything together for my good. So another bit on meekness would be that meekness is patience, submission, and humility before all providences and manifesting itself in a spirit of Gentleness. It is a beautiful quality in Christians is meekness. And let me, let's end the verse. Verse 5 again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a promise of future blessing for the meek. 
It's not the proud, it's not the aggressive, it's not the harsh, not the arrogant who are going to inherit the earth. It's going to be the meek who are going to inherit the earth. The meek shall enjoy all the rights and privileges of full citizenship in the messianic kingdom. One commentator put it like this. He said, I like thinking of the Christian hope, thinking of the Christian hope. So most people think of Christian hope, they think of heaven, which is not wrong. He said, I like thinking of the Christian hope, heaven, with this beatitude as a hope embracing a new heaven and earth. Randy Alcorn, who's thought a lot about heaven, written a lot about heaven, he says when we get to heaven for the first, first time into heaven, he, think, he thinks we're going to gasp with wonder when we first get there. And he thinks we're going to just continually do this over and over as we discover more and more about heaven, just be gasping in amazement and wonder. But he says this, that will be just the beginning because we will not see our real eternal home, the new earth, until after the resurrection of the dead. And it will be far better than anything we've Seen. So I think meekness is produced when we experience the gentleness of God's grace. It makes us meek with others. But I think meekness will be sustained and strengthened as we think about the new heavens, new earth. Oh, we will be strengthened as we think about the future. One pastor said the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth is intended by the Lord to give us the strength to endure in meekness when the natural inclination would be to defend ourselves or retaliate or give way to fretful anger. So what do the followers of Jesus look like? Number one, they're poor in spirit. They know they're spiritually destitute, spiritual poverty before a holy God. All they can do is cry out for mercy. Number two, they mourn. They mourn for their sins. They don't treat their sins lightly. They genuinely mourn. It may come out in tears. It may not, but they mourn over their sins. And then they are comforted with the comfort of the gospel. And when you experience the comfort of the gospel, it produces meekness. Number three, meekness in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. I pray, Father, though, if there are any in this room who do not yet know you in a saving way or any listening that don't know you in a saving way, I pray that you will awaken them to their condition. And I pray that you would produce in them poverty of spirit, help them to see that they have no righteousness of their own, but open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, that he provides a way. He has provided a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. And I pray that you would bring them to experience the comfort of the gospel. But Father, for those of us who have experienced the comfort of the gospel, I pray that we would live lives that would reflect that, that we would be genuinely meek with others and there would be deep joy in our lives. I pray that even as we sing, that you would be honored by our worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.